The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Versus the Lizard People. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Part 1 Earth Analog. If aliens visit us, the outcome would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. We only have to look at ourselves to see how intelligent life might develop into something we wouldn't want to meet. Stephen Hawking Prologue Harbinger from Space For reasons that will become clear around Episode 3, I feel it best to begin with this image. There's me. 17-year-old Danny Thomas, with a towel around my waist, stepping into my room to discover a reptilian humanoid from another world. Conspirator, the lizard person said. And he was right, only not for the reasons he thought at the time. This alien, in his crimson cloak, his long tail undulating on my bedroom floor, had come to disrupt my world and forever change the lives of my friends and me one winter morning in 1987. When in a single moment, one is about to begin an incredible, life-changing intergalactic adventure, an adventure that makes a Spielberg movie seem dull by comparison, one doesn't always realize the gravity of said moment. In this case, I did. Standing in a towel before a lizard person from outer space, part of me knew that all my teenage angst, romantic complications, my friends, my problems at school, all the pain of the last few years, and all the punk rock spirit inside me were somehow converging on this unique moment in human history. Of course, I couldn't find the words to express all that. 
So I just said, holy shit. Mod Log 1, Winter in Oregon, 1987. Six days left on Earth. If you're going to understand my story, you have to put on Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me. It's the first song I heard on the day that my friends and I began our quest to overthrow the lizard people. It's from White Nights, that awful drama from a couple years back. Say what you will about the flick, it blows. But Say You, Say Me is seriously bitchin'. Why the song isn't included on the soundtrack is absolutely beyond me. I want to take you back to the beginning of the story. It's like my job as the narrator of this log. But we've got to set the mood. My friends say that confessing my affection for Lionel Richie is tantamount to relinquishing my punk rock credibility, but I say bogus. If anything, it's more punk rock to listen to Lionel Richie. If you don't have a copy of Say You, Say Me, you won't understand my story. Your brain will crackle and fizz from all the scientific data, absolutely. Your heart will race in frantic step with our great adventure, sure. Your nerves will tighten and cramp from all the tension, totally. The romance will make you go all warm and gooey inside, duh. But you won't get it. Not really, anyway. So, put in the Dancing on the Ceiling tape, or CD, if you're the fancy type, and let's party. Got it? Wait to hit play. I'll tell you when. In Portland, Oregon, it rains from September to April. The sun recedes behind a wet, gray haze as fall sets in and doesn't crawl back out of its soggy cave until summer descends and every pallid Oregonian hisses and shields their faces like scalded vampires. Me? I like the winter. I like the cold and the smell of wet concrete and groaning radiators in every house. I like falling asleep to the drum of rain on my window at night. I like drinking coffee in the morning. Yes, me, 17-year-old Danny Thomas, drinks coffee. I'm not trying to act all grown up. I just like it. Of course, admitting you prefer winter to summer is akin to pledging your allegiance to Satan, even in Oregon. I've resigned myself to enjoying the season silently, dreading the heat and the harsh light that will oppress us come May, disrupting my cozy little world. So, imagine me... Danny Thomas, waking up at 6 a.m. on a Friday morning, November 19, 1987, while it was still dark out. My room is this wicked lair in my mom's attic. It's not as creepy as it sounds. When Gremlins came out three years ago, I was so stoked on Billy Peltzer's attic room that I begged my mom to let me relocate upstairs. After all we'd both been through that year, she eventually gave in. You even access the attic via one of those pull-down ladder doors. 
It's awesome. My twin bed is on the far end of the long, narrow chamber, either end of it nearly touching the A-frame ceiling, which I'd covered in rad posters. Star Wars, David Bowie, Evil Dead, The Ramones, Aliens, you name it. The long walls are lined with everything you need to survive a nuclear winter. Comic books, sci-fi novels, Dungeon Master's Guide, a wicked vinyl and cassette collection, a ton of old issues of Starlog and Fangoria, you know, that kind of stuff. I'd managed to wire my dad's old turntable into a less-than-awesome GE35635 boombox, which I'd also wired into my more-than-awesome Atari ST computer. I'm not rich. It was a gift from my grandparents on my 15th birthday, partly informed, I'm sure, by all the grief I'd gone through the year before. All my gadgets were set up on the end of the room opposite my bed, where my tunes were rigged into my Atari ST, which was wired into my Nintendo Entertainment System. By some stroke of unbelievable luck, my mom had been offered a Radio Shack TRS-80 1200 baud modem by a friend who knew her son liked gadgets. With some work, I'd been able to disable the lockout chip in my NES, gut the TRS-80, and transplant its brains into a hacked NES cartridge that was previously home to an extra copy of Excitebike. For all you non-tech-savvy listeners, that means that I can now use my Nintendo to get online. All this is, of course, beside the point. On that fateful morning in November of 1987, I woke to those digital piano chords that opened Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me. Hit play now. During winter in Portland, the sun doesn't even attempt to show up until around 8 a.m., so it was still dark out. Thin, cold sheets of rain were beating on the single round window of my attic room, a low drone of white noise. My clock radio alarm must have gone off minutes prior, But whatever the DJ had to say about traffic or the news rebounded off my snoring subconsciousness. Lionel Richie, on the other hand, broke right through. And I sat up slowly, flicking on my desktop lamp and filling the attic with a gentle, orangish glow. The Mr. Coffee I'd scored at a garage sale made a horrible cup, but I'd snuck it into the attic anyway and kept it just out of sight beside my bed covered by my dad's old journal, which remained by my bedside at all times for easy access. My mom wasn't stoked about my coffee intake, but she hadn't exactly wigged out about it just yet. I mostly tried to avoid the subject. That morning, hearing that comforting percolation after I'd flicked the switch, it just seemed to sink with Lionel's ballad and the rain on the window like a match made in heaven. It was on, man. Rob was sitting silently at my feet, doing nothing. The Robotic Operating Buddy, or ROB, was a sad attempt on Nintendo's part to promote the NES, which, as it turned out, wasn't even necessary. Looking like a cheap knockoff of the number 5 robot from Short Circuit, Rob kinda sorta interacted with a couple of crappy NES cartridges, but his purpose was questionable at best. Some dweeb of a clerk at Service Merchandise had convinced my mom that Rob was the Christmas gift for any Nintendo enthusiast, and there he was under our tree come December 25th. I had, of course, feigned delight and kissed her cheek, but really I was thinking, what the hell is this thing? 
It didn't take much to modify Rob enough to respond to some simple voice commands by utilizing a few basic Kurzweil speech recognition programs I dug up online, and some parts I managed to hack from one of those talking Worlds of Wonder Julie dolls. Rob took my voice commands about as well as he played Nintendo games. Pretty damn hit or miss. We had a sort of love-hate thing going on. Rob, I said, enunciating dramatically. Boot up my computer. You'll rot your mind, Rob protested, servos whirring as he peered up at me, his flat rectangular head looking like a pair of space binoculars. Rob, I sighed, rubbing my face. Boot up my computer. This time, Rob obeyed, turning and scooting across the hardwood floor on the wheels I'd given him. You spend too much time on that thing, he nagged. Why, I wondered to myself, had I added that to his bank of responses? The hacked Excitebike cartridge clicked into place inside the Nintendo, and the familiar yet infuriating modem static soon followed. For a moment, I saw myself reflecting in the grayish darkness of the blank computer screen. My straight, brown hair, parted to the right and constantly hanging in my face, always drove my mom crazy. I could practically hear her in my head as I ran my fingers through the obstruction, creating a line of sight through my stringy mop. In a moment... The NARS login screen glowed into focus on the Atari ST monitor, asking for my username and password. Whenever possible, I kept any telling personal information away from my public NARS account. To create a profile, you practically had to give a DNA sample, so maintaining anonymity on the NARS servers was impossible. But unlike most users, I didn't even use my first name. My profile is called the ModLog. Much of the mod log appealed only to the super nerd, but I found myself weaving ambiguous threads of my life narrative into things like a tutorial on disabling the NES blockout chip. On its best day, the mod log was like the very personal diary of a mad teen scientist with an affinity for pop culture and punk rock. At least, I like to think so. It has become more than my geeky way of chronicling or bragging about all my misadventures and technological modifications, it is now the very means by which I am distributing my story, the one you're listening to right now. I typed in my username and password, and the NARS welcome screen appeared before me. After a cursory read-through of the updates my friends had made to their profiles, I checked to see if anyone had read, commented on, or liked my latest update. By clicking a small smiley face icon at the foot of any given post, NARS users could smile at said post. It was the sad, insecure currency of the NARS world. He who has the most smiles wins. Nothing noteworthy. A couple of smiles from strangers, a friend or two letting the world know what they thought of last night's sitcoms, a banal comment, so true, 
on my recent essay about the infamous Atari 2600 ET game. Okay, so far be it from me to interrupt two consecutive times with hardly any break at all, but I want to point out that my thoughts on the ET cartridge were especially timely. Like every kid in America, I was given a copy of ET for Christmas in 1982, and like most of those same kids, I didn't get it. I didn't hate the thing, I just couldn't get into it. The rest of the world, however, loathed E.T. like it was the damn plague. The entire video game industry crashed the following year, and E.T. took the brunt of the blame. There were even reports that Atari had dumped millions of unwanted copies in the desert of New Mexico, where they rest like dinosaur bones to this very day. Thing is, I don't think E.T. is that bad a game. I own games that are much worse. Have you ever played Firefly on Atari? Good God. Anyway, I have no way of proving it, but I think Atari had a rough time financially, and that amidst a number of contributing factors, they declined and went kaput. Being able to blame E.T. is just more interesting, and the urban legend about millions of loathsome E.T. cartridges under the crust of New Mexico is an absurd yarn that gamers spin to make a boring story more interesting. Companies, even big ones, go out of business sometimes, that's all. For any of you listeners in the distant future, I'm entirely confident you can confirm that to date, there have been no telling Atari findings out in the Alamogordo desert. If there have, you have my permission to end this transmission right now. But there haven't, so don't. I sat back in my chair and sipped my steaming cup of coffee from a warm Max Headroom mug that read, Party to the Max. I stood up and stretched, my red flannel robe draped around my thin, but not totally wimpy, frame. I wasn't tall or buff or anything, and even though my mom said I was the all-American boy next door, I was just sort of a typical teenager. I squirmed out of the robe and pajama pants quickly, practically shivering, and climbed into a typical day's outfit. Denim jacket, threadbare minor threat t-shirt, black jeans, black high-top Chuck Taylors. Rob, I semi-yelled. What time is it? Rob seemed to think for a moment before Cindy Lauper's time after time began playing from his dinky speakers. Damn it, Rob. Barreling down Ninth Avenue, I centered my gravity on my skateboard, leaning hard, and careened on the sharp corner to Davis Street. With two brisk movements, I ollied over the low curb outside of Fuller's Cafe, 
then pushed the tail down into the wet concrete to bring my ride to an abrupt, satisfyingly crunchy stop. Hopping from the deck, I stomped the tail once more, and the board popped from the sidewalk and into my hands, the cold trucks wet to the touch. Without looking, I reached for the Walkman fastened to my hip like a cowboy's revolver and drove my thumb into the stop button before gangrene could hit the final chorus. The sounds of the street faded into the foreground, and I was suddenly aware of the smell of wet concrete and exhaust, Portland in the morning. Through the rain-streaked windows of the cafe, I could see Connor, black-clad and solitary at our booth, hunched over a book. Church is closed on Friday, altar boy. I laughed, settling into the booth across from Connor, who I could now see was squinting into an open Bible. Ah, ah, Connor tisked, his gaze still fixed on the book. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Is that you or the Holy Scriptures? I asked. The Apostle Paul, retard, Connor sighed, closing the weathered tome. Good morning. Connor frowned. How to describe this anomaly? Connor introduced me to punk rock when I was 14 by giving me a copy of the Ramones' Rocket to Russia. Every cool band I listened to, The Cramps, Black Flag, Bad Brains. Connor discovered them first by befriending the clerk at Music Millennium, his favorite record shop in the city. Connor's all-time favorites were The Misfits, a bizarre outfit marked by Elvis-like crooning set to dissonant power chords and goofily morbid lyrics. Their signature emblem, the crimson ghost of the eponymous 1964 horror flick, was forever stitched on the breast pocket of the black leather jacket Connor wore every day, year-round. Actually, he wore the same outfit entirely every day, year-round. A tattered black t-shirt, equally ratty black jeans, and black leather combat boots to complement his coat, both of which he claimed to regret since becoming a vegetarian. His hair was a long and scraggly black mop, teased and stringy as if he'd acquired a bottle of hairspray at some point and never recovered. His black Ray-Bans usually masked whatever emotion managed to eke out in conversation. Connor's parents had all but disowned him, and he avoided being kicked out of his house by keeping to himself and staying out of trouble at school. A couple of years ago, some classmate of ours attempted to save Connor's discernibly hellbound soul by proselytizing his head off through an entire period of P.E., using some bogus speech he'd obviously been fed at his local youth group. Connor had sat there quietly, either staring right at this young evangelist or out into the gym. Because of his shades, no one could tell. When the whole spiel was over, he had simply said, Damn, Jesus is punk rock. And that was it. Connor started reading a Bible and digging this Jesus of Nazareth dude, whom Connor described as a poet, a revolutionary, and a criminal. Exactly Connor's type. The rest of us assumed the Jesus phase might subside, but Connor's fandom showed no signs of waning. He had little patience for what he called bullshit Christians. But for this Middle Eastern dude from 2,000 years ago, he had all the time in the world. On that winter day in 1987, Connor was first to our morning meeting ritual, a cigarette smoldering in the ashtray before him. Good morning, Father Froud, I bowed solemnly. You better give up the old cancer sticks before they revoke your preaching license. Pray for me, he said, extinguishing the butt and scooting the ashtray aside. What are you listening to? Connor looked down his nose at the Walkman as I set it atop my backpack in the booth next to me. Christopher Cross, I lied. 
What can I say? Sailing helps me get in the zone when I skate. Your sarcasm belies your insecurity, my friend. Connor leveled a finger at me. What guilty pleasure lurks in thy Walkman? Tell me you're not still jamming that Cameo record. Cameo is not a guilty pleasure. You just lack the soul to fathom that gnarly bass. Funk is for dweebs, said Connor. This is why you are a poser. Before I could defend myself, a New Zealand accent interrupted my prepared defense of Cameo's bass lines. Cameo is gnarly, Connor. Jade Calgary said excitedly, settling into the booth beside me with his backpack in his lap. You're so punked that I worry you'll narrow your listening experience to the point I reckon the only thing you'll be able to listen to is the static of the busted TV in your room. Hey, Connor barked, giving Jade the same wary index finger I'd seen moments prior. That TV works just fine. Dude. I scoffed. You spend more time pounding on that lamewad TV with your fist than you do watching it. On this, you are correct, Connor conceded. I am not a slave to the idiot box, unlike some spazoid over here. I'm a foreigner in this great nation, Jade said in mock defense. I've been tasked with the burden of using the television to lower my IQ to a more American standard. Connor threw a straw at Jade while I punched him in the arm. Jade Calgary's family had moved to America after he'd spent his childhood and early adolescence in New Zealand and then Australia. He'd been a social enough guy his first year at our school, but found in our little group a shared obsession with movies, TV, video games, and music. He was loud, always full of energy, and surprisingly sentimental. Jade was so fond of our company that we could always count on him to show up and participate in our never-ending arguments. Yeah, nah, Connor. You owe this exotic lad a certain amount of respect. After all, I'm not from here. Neither is punk rock. Hold the phone, Prince Charles, Connor immediately protested. We had the Ramones and New York Dolls before the Sex Pistols ever trashed a hotel room. Bagger, Jade said. I'm not British, man. Besides, the Ramones are about as punk as the monkeys. Dude, I said. The monkeys? What the hell are you talking about? It's a thing, right? Jade asked, turning to me as if he were asking in confidence. The Monkees are like a 60s sitcom band. Who am I thinking of? We have no idea. The point is, Connor interrupted, that your insult is bogus, Mr. Knit Sweater. Ah, begging your pardon, Jade laughed. My studded jacket is at the cleaners. For all his knowledge of punk trivia, Jade was just an ordinary New Zealand-American teenager, usually dressed in a loose-fitting sweater and blue jeans his hair gelled back. The same waitress to serve us every Friday morning for the last two years appeared, placing a steaming coffee mug in front of me before setting out a few glasses of water and promising to return with the rest. We're one short this morning, Connor smiled at the waitress, his commitment to manners contrasting his appearance. No problem, sweetie, the waitress replied absently. Who are we missing? Jade asked. Emma's family just got back from California last night, Connor said between short sips from his glass of water. I doubt she'll want to get up early to hang out with you bozos. Emma. My stomach undulated at the sound of her name, then sank with the realization that she wouldn't be showing up this morning. Is she coming to school? I asked, putting on my very best casual voice. Connor shrugged, then nodded to the cafe entrance. 
Here comes the rest of the band. I could so be in a band, Becky said, appearing beside me. Sorry we're late. It's Barrett's fault. What the hell, Becky? Barrett said, moving into the booth with his palms up in frustration. What? Becky shot back. I was ready at 7.30. Barrett turned to face the rest of us as if Becky had suddenly vanished. I waited outside her house for 10 minutes. Oh, please, Becky groaned. You're here now, I offered. Thus, all is right in the world. All could have been right sooner, Becky mumbled. Yes, Barrett said coldly, his eyes back on Becky. Yes, it could have. Becky smiled, her freckled nose wrinkling, and sipped from a glass of water, only asking if it was for her afterward. Rebecca Berkeley, the sassy, freckle-faced redhead from the Deep South, had wandered into our oddball brigade on a total whim. We had met in chemistry and settled into an effortless rapport one seldom develops even amongst family. Becky became like a sister to me, and before anyone realized it was happening, she was grafted into our little group. She didn't care for all the nerdy things we went on about, per se, but Becky was as clever as any of us and far more emotionally mature. With her endlessly fiery personality, beautiful face and figure, any of us could have fallen for Becky, but instead, she became a sister to the group, and we became brothers to her, hyper-protective brothers. I'm sure many of her gal friends wondered why she wasted so much time with us, but she was as faithful a friend as anyone could hope for and our social circles eventually just accepted the strangeness of our connection. Anyway, Becky said with cartoon exaggeration, then smiled at the table. How is everyone? No, 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 Barrett said, stifling Becky's warm inquiry. Let the record represent my reliability and Becky's tardiness. I want that settled before we move on. Becky crossed her eyes. Gag me with a spoon. I apologized a squillion times. Barrett Stevens was a comic foil to Becky's feminine liveliness. Though he had the looks and physique to be some class of high school jock or elite, he preferred painting and arguing about movies with us. He came off gruff at first, but he was deeply loyal, and despite all his razzing, I think he just loved our company. His straightforward personality and generous sense of humor seemed to contradict his artistic bent. Barrett spent much of his spare time in a closet he had converted into a darkroom for developing the photos he'd taken of the city of Portland. Like the rest of us, he was more clean-cut than Connor and favored denim jackets and button-ups to tattered leather. But ever since Back to the Future had come out a couple of years ago, he wouldn't stop wearing that same red Class 5 vest donned in the movie by Marty McFly, much as we begged him to retire it. Pulled it and rod with you guys? Jade asked, drawing our attention to the absence of our final party member, other than Emma, who apparently wouldn't show this morning. Major bummer. He's paying for parking, Barrett said absently, finally relaxing into the booth and lifting the same menu he'd seen dozens of times before this morning. Barrett, Becky scolded. You made Paul pay for parking? He offered, Barrett said. He always does, Connor shrugged. A moment later, Paul Patchett strolled into the diner, a black beanie pulled over his shaved head. Poor baby, Becky sighed. Paul looked at her, confused. The peacemaker of the group, Paul specialized in thankless favors and uninvited but undeniable wisdom. Paul was a better friend than any of us knew how to be, and even though he was a year older, he was more laid back than the rest of the group. Happy to sit comfortably in the background, Paul's endless kindness and inability to get pissed off drew us all into silent admiration. 
What did I miss? He asked, unzipping his gray members-only jacket. Jade started counting his fingers. Either Barrett or Becky are to blame for your collective tardiness, but we'll never know whom. Before that, we deduced that Kana is too punk for Cameo's funky bass lines, even though Brits created punk and are therefore authorities on the matter. Also, I added, Connor is too punk for TV, which is just as well because his ancient static box is always on the fritz. Did that thing finally break? Paul asked, sipping the water that had been waiting at his seat. It's not broken, said Connor. And anyway, who cares? You know the lizard people use that stuff to brainwash us. Here we go, Becky sighed, rolling her eyes. Sorry, Connor grunted. The emi didn't realize lizard people was offensive at this table. It isn't, said Becky, but your conspiracy theories are a little silly. She offered him a patronizing pat on the shoulder. Our waitress appeared as if from nowhere and asked, The usual? Connor looked around at the table, and when we'd all confirmed with a nod, spoke for the group. Yes, ma'am, that'd be righteous. Thank you. She nodded with a half-smile before disappearing again. Why do you drink that? Becky sneered at the black coffee I'd been quietly enjoying. Danny is a mad scientist, Barrett stated in mock admiration. Every mad scientist worth their lab coat has to have coffee jitters. You have jitters? Becky asked, sounding concerned. I don't have jitters, I said. But you are a scientist, she insisted. Not sure about that one either. Dude, Connor interjected, as long as you're making computers out of toasters and stuff, you should come fix my Nintendo. The Emi aren't controlling your mind with Nintendo? Jade asked. Price worth paying, Connor shrugged. He can fix that NES all day, but what the hell are you going to play it on? That busted-ass TV? Barrett goaded. Connor raised a middle finger at Barrett without turning to face him. Don't end sentences with prepositions, man. Why the sudden concern for grammar, Reverend? I asked Connor. I have my moments, he said. Where is Emma? Becky asked, and I felt my stomach slip again. Probably sleeping, Jade offered, as though he had become the authority on Emma's whereabouts. She's only just back from holiday. Vacation, damn it, Barrick barked, banging a fist on the table. You better straighten up and fly right, Napoleon. Dude, Napoleon was French, Jade said. Barrett raised an eyebrow and sipped slowly from his water glass. Close enough, he finally said. You can watch TV at my house, Connor, Becky said, leaning over the table as if to shut the rest of us out of her invitation. To watch what? Connor laughed. Reruns of ALF? Becky immediately spoke up to defend herself, but couldn't get a word in over our gloating howls and laughter. She watched ALF like a lonely housewife watches soap operas. Our waitress reappeared and mechanically distributed the same dishes we ordered every Friday morning. We thanked her, and she warned us not to be late for school. Alf is a good show, Becky said defensively, as if the conversation had never stalled. Nothing quite like an anthropomorphized wad of fur and felt to round out primetime television, Barrett said. You're not missing much, Connor. That wad of fur and felt is my favorite Muppet, thank you very much said Becky. You like Muppets, Connor. Don't act all high and mighty. I like Muppets, Becky. Muppets. Alf is not a Muppet. Becky crossed her eyes again. Oh my God, seriously, what is he then? He's the old American sitcom star, Jade laughed, mouthful of pancakes. 
Seriously, though, Becky went on, unwilling to relent, what's the difference? The difference, I said, sipping my coffee, is that a psychedelic hippie with a beard didn't create Alf. Hey, Connor barked, pointing at me again. I'll not have Jim Henson spoken ill of at this table. We all groaned. Here we go, Paul sighed, exhausted by the Jim Henson motif. No, no, Connor said. Jim Henson is punk rock. Oh, for Christ's sake, Barrett grumbled, rubbing his temples. We know about the punk rock adventures of Jim Henson, creator of the Muppets. He's fearless, I recited, doing my best Connor impression. He's a visionary, Becky added. Always reinventing himself, Jade said, attempting an American accent, spinning his hand in the air. Guys, listen to me. I actually have something new to contribute to this, Connor pleaded. Now he's in jail for being so punk rock. Or for LSD, Paul laughed, stealing a bite of Connor's pancakes. He's not into drugs, man, Connor said. Why is he in jail, a resident conspiracy theorist? Jade finally asked, taking the bait. Dude, for the dark crystal. I furrowed my brow and took a long sip of my rapidly cooling coffee. A few years ago, Jim Henson, benevolent bearded creator of the Muppets, had embarked on the noteworthy task of producing the world's first fully puppet-populated feature film. Rather than stocking his completely fabricated fantasy world with smiling, googly-eyed sock puppets, Henson had opted to employ complex, realistic creatures that required the combined efforts of hundreds of designers, builders, and puppeteers. More surprisingly still, the resulting movie, The Dark Crystal, was a creepy, humorless adventure featuring screeching monsters, sword fights, and genocide. The real uproar over the Dark Crystal, however, had less to do with confused parents and more to do with implied insurrection. The antagonist of Jim Henson's surprising foray into dark fantasy bore an uncanny resemblance to the lizard people, or, for those politically correct readers who prefer to call them by their native name, the Emi. Humanoid, reptilian, buzzard-like creatures garbed in royal robes with ornate jewelry. It didn't take long for someone to wonder whether Henson had some subversive parody in mind. The similarities to our alien guests were pretty glaring. Henson refused to comment on the suspicious resemblance. The dark crystal tanked at the box office, and Jim Henson disappeared from the public eye. Which is a shame, because the dark crystal is totally wicked. You have to see it. Not to mention the fact that rumors had been swirling that Henson was in talks with none other than David Bowie about the possibility of some insane puppet musical. With Henson hidden away somewhere, incommunicado, his outstanding projects were put on hold, and rumors began to circulate that the not-so-flattering depiction of the Emi had something to do with it. That he had been locked up, however, as Connor was now suggesting, seemed pretty far-fetched. In jail, Barrett said, vocalizing the apprehension we were all feeling. For what? Becky asked. Man, that dude ain't in jail for that movie, Paul laughed, reaching for another bite of Connor's pancakes. Connor lifted his hands as if he was baffled by Paul's willingness to dismiss the conspiracy theory and yet partake of Connor's pancakes. Why would he be in jail for the movie? Becky asked again. You think the Emi locked him up because he made some puppets that kind of, sort of, reminded people of them? 
I asked, making no effort to disguise my disbelief. I'm just saying, man, Connor shrugged. Dude was prolific. Projects left and right. He was about to work with Bowie, dude. Freaking Bowie, Jade nodded to himself. Who could argue with Bowie? Bowie was punk to his core. I just feel like no one is listening to me, Becky groaned. For God's sake, Barrett sighed, turning to face Becky in mock attentiveness. Jim Henson is that guy who made up the Muppets. He operates Kermit the Frog. He made that whacked-out movie with all the lizard, vulture, puppet things we went and saw a couple of years ago. I didn't like that, Becky interrupted, wrinkling her freckled nose. Barrett stared at her impatiently. I'm listening, she fussed. Some people think those buzzard things were meant to parody the Emi, and since they're the bad guys in the movie, that'd be pretty controversial. Now Jim Henson has gone mysteriously missing, so Connor over here, ever the subversive thinker, wonders if he's been locked up by the evil powers that be. Oh my God, Becky gasped, suddenly getting it. They locked him up for that? Can they do that? They didn't do that, Paul reiterated, chewing a mouthful of pancakes. What the hell, Paul? Connor protested. You can't eat my pancakes and piss on my theories, man. Sorry, sweetheart. I haven't got time for anything else, Paul quoted, doing his best to sound like Han Solo. That quote doesn't even work here, man, Connor said. So wait, Becky pleaded. So he's not in jail. We don't know, actually, said Jade. Connor suspects he might be. Popular opinion likely suggests otherwise. Those things in the movie didn't really look like the lizard people, Becky thought out loud. Subtlety, Becky, Connor said, pointing a fork at her. Besides, it's not like any of us hang out with the lizard people. We've never even seen them in real life. Who has? Paul asked, as if this point proved nothing. It's not like they hang around Portland. Portland, no. Vancouver, yes. Vancouver, Washington, a city just north of Portland, was home to a semi-secret research facility that was rumored to employ EMI scientists. Very few knew what went on there. It was something of an urban legend in the Pacific Northwest. Well, then go peek in the windows of the big lab and let us know how subtle Jim Henson was, I said to Connor, setting my empty coffee mug down on the table. Get Memra's autograph while you're there, Paul added. We can sell it. Our waitress casually tossed the bill in the middle of the table. We good? She asked. Very, Connor smiled, as the group moved all at once to lay crinkled bills and rattling change atop the receipt, already soaking up rings of moisture from a nearby water glass. This was our mini-society. Each of us cut from different cloths, different stories to tell, different rungs on the high school social ladder, and yet somehow we had found one another. There were imperfections, to be sure, 
insecurities, pettiness, you know, human stuff. But here we were. I think all this occurred to me as we stood up from the table that morning. At least it seems that way now, looking back. Of course, I have assigned the morning a tremendous amount of retroactive significance, given everything that followed. Even so, I can't help but meditate on these little details, the things that made us who we were. I wish that I'd thought about it more. Recording it this way feels like one way of confessing my profound affection for this group of misfits. I wish I could do more. Once outside, Connor lit another cigarette, and we all set to work shaming him for his disgusting habit. I've been given a thorn in my flesh, Connor said, the cigarette bouncing on his lips as he spoke. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Having finished his mini-speech, he flicked the butt away. What's that, pastor? Barrett asked, retrieving car keys from his Marty McFly vest. Once again, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote about nicotine addiction, did he? No, Connor sighed, fanning away the last wisps of smoke just trying to get some damn sympathy around here. Have a good day, breakfast club, Becky smiled, putting on her coat, ignoring the spontaneous Bible lesson. We all groaned. When you grow up, she warned us, quoting the breakfast club, your heart dies. Who cares? I sighed. I care, she smiled, delighted that I'd acknowledged her reference. Standing outside of Fuller's Cafe, Jade, Connor, and I stood there in the light rain, holding our skateboards by their wet trucks as Paul, Barrett, and Becky climbed into Barrett's Ford Aerostar parked just outside. Barrett rolled the window down and nodded at the three of us on the curb. You guys want to skitch a ride to school? By skitching, Barrett meant the seemingly awesome but actually horrifying act of riding a skateboard whilst clinging to the back of a moving vehicle. Dude, Connor yelled back. People don't really skitch. They'd die. Marty McFly did it, Barrett reminded us. Always with the Marty McFly, I groused. Yeah, well, when you have a special effects team to help us, let me know. I bet he really did it, Barrett said thoughtfully as the window ascended. In order to ensure proliferation of the word virus, you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus. Lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on Twitter at the word virus and Instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com. <laughs>